One of the things that I think is really evolving is the consideration of healthcare and the data around it as an ecosystem. And more and more organizations thinking about how do we collaborate and work together in a way that's appropriate, that is respectful of the guardrails that are intended for the protection of individuals. And how do we operate within that landscape? What can we move forward and push along? That's maybe beyond the proprietary things that we cannot share. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. What is the current state of data in healthcare? And how can data be used even more effectively to improve people's health? Our guest today, Dr. Victoria Gammerman, who is the Global Head of Data Governance and Insights at Beringer Ingelheim, is an ideal person to offer a perspective on these questions. Victoria is a biostatistician who operates within the business and academic worlds. Her career is a balance between different areas, biology and statistics and business and academia, but all towards the same goal, using data as a force for good. Although she has been asked to disclose her current employer and current job title, this is an external activity that is entirely unrelated to her full-time employment with BI. All statements that Victoria makes reflect her own views and experiences and are not attributable to BI, nor has she been authorized to speak on behalf of BI. Tune in to find out on this episode of The Data Chief for Victoria's take on the healthcare and data ecosystem. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Victoria, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you so much for having me on today, Cindy. And where are you joining us from today, Victoria? My lovely uh, home office. Uh, we're located here in Connecticut. Okay, Stanford. I used to go up there quite frequently. And I understand, though, you've been traveling. You're just back from Boston, from BioIT. Tell us a little bit, how was that first conference in person in a while? That's exactly right. First conference in person in a while. Um, BioIT World is a great meeting, really has gone through a lot of evolution, a lot of talk about precision medicine, and these days, a lot more around data and technology. So very relevant. I had a chance to connect with some other uh, experts in the area of data management and the topic of data reuse from the perspective of our clinical trial data and how we might be able to make the most of it for research and development. So a really uh, great meeting. I encourage folks interested in that topic to check it out. Oh, well, that's awesome. So today on the Data Chief, we are really combining two of my favorite topics, my passions, healthcare or data and analytics, really to improve patient outcomes. Victoria, you have such an interesting background. Many data professionals in this space have come from the data side or the tech side, but you actually have approached this 
always and originally from the statistical side. Tell us a little bit about that background. Absolutely. So from the statistics and data side, it's been a very interesting journey. The first person who I knew in my life who was really good at math was my grandmother. And she was a math teacher for uh, an elementary education for almost 40 years before she retired. So I always had this person who was a champion for math, who gave me a sense of confidence about mathematics and, and an interest and a comfort level with it. So math has been an underlying passion of mine. But at the same time, as I went through and, and explored careers, mathematics at the time wasn't really something you looked at as a career. Data science was not really a term back then that we used. And so I sort of fell into the space of medicine, having some examples uh, in my family and, and around me of people who were interested and, and working in the medical space. And it was when I realized that to do one thing, well, I might have to perhaps do less math and spend less time studying and pursuing that, that I flipped it on its head, pursued a little bit of math, and then heard a wonderful professor from Boston University, Professor Lisa Sullivan. I heard her speak about this topic of biostatistics. She kind of combined uh, in a very short amount of time this idea of healthcare data and analytics and public health. And I thought it was a light bulb moment. Yeah, it, it, it was one of those pivotal moments where I heard something that really resonated with this combination of my interests. And from there, I was able to yet again pivot and uh, complete my master's in mathematics and then take that and apply it to the area of biostatistics, this idea of applying data and analytics to healthcare and life sciences. What a great journey and no doubt a fabulous role model in your grandmother. I love that story, of course. <laughs> um, so Victoria, for those who are not familiar with Barringer Ingelheim, tell us a little bit about the products and therapies that you provide. So I, I would refer uh, people who are interested to learn more about Barringer Ingelheim to our website, you can find on there uh, various different areas, including our pipeline. Uh, if you look at some of our pipeline, you'll see things like the respiratory diseases, which have been um, a keystone of some of our past uh, and current compounds. You'll see also areas in uh, the specialty care of respiratory, like uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a lung disease, and the related diseases there. We have uh, compounds also uh, that we're exploring in the space of oncology and uh, many other uh, therapeutic areas, including uh, the central nervous system diseases in the space of retinopathy. So re really quite a, a big portfolio um, at Behringer cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes and the en endocrine system. Quite, a, quite a, a plethora and lots of data to go with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's the type 2 diabetes that I was familiar with. And of course, frontline, because we love our pets. Yes. Um, so, so at least that is a household name. <laughs> exactly. Animal health, frontline, next guard, heart guard. And now, so if you think about where you started 10 years ago and the role of data and then just this last week, meeting with uh, professionals on how we can drive the industry forward. Maybe what are some of the biggest 
changes that you've seen in the last 10 years? There have been many changes in our data and technology landscape. A really good example that comes to mind that we've seen in healthcare has actually been the utilization of something we call real-world data. So for those not familiar with what that means from a healthcare perspective, real-world data, a good example would be some claims data. So when I go to the doctor, the doctor has my medical record, of course, and then in order to get appropriately billed with my insurance and get the right coverage, they would have to submit some claims based on the medical visit. And that's one example of a real-world data source that has existed for the purposes of billing, but there's more and more exploration now of, could we use unique data sources, maybe data sources we hadn't thought about before, or we didn't have the technology to be able to integrate, look at, and consider in the past and bring it all together to address some of these relatively complex questions and and problems that we're trying to solve. So now thinking about taking that claims data and actually leveraging some of the insights in that data to be able to address specifically problems intended to be used with that data and look at and gain new insights about something we're looking at in clinical development is an area we've seen uh, more and more exploration in alongside with, of course, regulators who have been talking more about that. Another big area is, of course, the technologies that all of us wear on our wrist every now and then or that we have on our phone. Yes. This plethora and collection of um, person-generated health data and how we might be able to use that and the regulators who might then also need to now think about how do we control that and make sure it's used appropriately and it's analyzed appropriately. So, so many... um, ways that we've seen the personalization of medicine, including all the way from an early uh, development perspective of biomarkers and the ability to now get very specific and targeted with how we understand a specific disease. Yeah, so very exciting. And purely coincidentally now, as you mentioned, your grandmother, I'm thinking of my mother-in-law who is no longer with us, but she... um, was English and she did have diabetes and eventually passed away from that. Now, if I think about the way data and patient care comes together, what you just described is very exciting because insurers, of course, want to focus on better patient outcomes as well. But this data historically has been fragmented, siloed. You mentioned regulators in the U.S. with HIPAA compliance. Sometimes it's very difficult to share data, even though the common goal is to improve patient outcomes. Do you see this changing, that the data sharing, the technology is getting easier, but is the regulation getting easier? It's a hard question to answer, especially as I think about this on a global scale and, for example, GDPR or some of the new regulations in the state of California. There's a lot that we don't know about how our data will be used that leads people to be quite protective of it. Yes. On the other hand, if I if I juxtapose that to this idea that you can watch a commercial on TV for some very rich and creamy ice cream and have these products 
right at your fingertips that might, in fact, be not so beneficial to your health, the ability for the um, advertising and the direct-to-patient or person um, information on things that might not be good for your health versus products that actually might be is also an interesting element and a component of the healthcare landscape. So one of the things that I think is really evolving is the consideration of healthcare and the data around it as an ecosystem. Yeah. And more and more organizations thinking about how do we collaborate and work together in a way that's appropriate, that is respectful of the guardrails that are intended for the protection of individuals. And how do we operate within that landscape? What can we move forward and push along? That's maybe beyond the proprietary things that we cannot share. I think the ecosystem is super exciting. And if we take the example of the wearable, I would love or would have loved when my mother-in-law's sugar level is low, that that wearable is generating an alert or we're tracking how long was it after she ingested the insulin or whatever medication she was on. But that gets back to the combination of an individual owning their data and understanding whom they are sharing this data with and how it's being used. So how do you envision the control of the patient and the relationship with all these people touching that data, what do we need to do to make the good of the ecosystem happen while minimizing the downsides? We could talk for hours about that topic and (laughs) and involve experts across many different areas. So maybe just the the tip, uh, the slight tip of that iceberg of that problem, the patient or person, I think about maybe from the perspective of my children or my children's children, what will these future um, patients ourselves as the technology landscape evolves? What will be our expectation? Right now, I can go to my phone and I know how to, if I type into a maps application, how to get from point A to point B. And it will tell me a direct path and it'll maybe give me one or two alternatives. It'll give me a few data points on the uh, environment around it. An accident is coming up. When I think about the same journey for health, for my own health, that roadmap is just not so clear. No. And it's manual for a lot. For some physicians, you have to call please fax, please fax my medical records. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And so we will see that uh, part of the digital transformation of healthcare will continue to evolve. And at the same time, we have to also be aware of the context that health data is collected in and think about um, all of that. A good example may be during COVID when Really, we have uh, traditionally in a hospital, for example, units, a cardiac unit, for example. And yet, when you have this influx of patients with COVID coming in, any bed is an available bed. And now that data and how it gets captured, really, what is truth? And what is that single source of truth? And how then do we interpret it? So the idea that I, as a patient, would be able to have 
one place where I can go and I see all of my connected healthcare information, hopefully my well care information, not just the sick care data, and that it's all there. And then I, as the individual, can give access to that information to my family members to help me care, get good care, to be informed about what my conditions are, what my medications are, to be able to have different doctors have that information can be very empowering. But it also has to be within an environment where we know that that data will be used for the good and not, for example, to um, prevent me from getting or having to pay more for certain things. Yeah. And so there's this really fine balance there that as an ecosystem of uh, those who are looking at the healthcare that has really not yet been solved. And I hope in our lifetimes, we can contribute to at least some solutions to make that easier for us. Yeah, the vision you've painted certainly is an exciting one. And you mentioned a data that is not readily available right now to healthcare providers, and that's your well care. Have I gone to the gym this week? Am I doing yoga? (laughs) Am I having too many sugary drinks or what have you? Um, So the idea of bringing that full health into the picture, are there data sources available? Is this mainly through the Fitbits and personal devices or what's happening in that space? There are more and more companies that I'm seeing that are collecting that kind of data and that kind of information. And yet still there is a disconnect because that information is not connected. In the U.S., we have a This Is Us uh, campaign where there is an initiative to try to collect information on panels of people. And I encourage uh, people interested to take a look at that. But at the end of the day, it's still um, data that is in different formats that is not so interoperable, even if we can find it and accessibility, I I think, is a struggle. And then reusability, you know, down the road, I think will also be an opportunity that we haven't yet captured. Yeah. So to capture the good of this or to derive all the good from this, there needs to be trust between the different stakeholders, the patient, the pharmaceutical companies, the insurers. How do we facilitate this trust? One brick at a time, one piece at a time. Within an organization, I think, is where it all starts, right? We, I have a role that I play in terms of a data governance perspective. And so from a data governance perspective, I see over and over again that there are parts of an organization that know their data well, and then there are the ideas around how do I reuse that data? And I think as a person and a patient, that's really where my concern is. My concern is not that a doctor, my doctor, would have my lab values and be able to make a recommendation about my health and well-being, but rather that if that information then lives and sits, who else can use it and who else can access it? And it's very not clear at the moment. Right. A lot of the opportunity to change that is a balance between what regulations tell us is appropriate to do and who then really is obligated to follow along. Yeah. So agree or disagree, I feel like the regulators are not keeping up with the 
technology? Partially agree. Okay. So, so we need the regulators to listen to this podcast. We need to proactively educate them about how technology has moved well beyond faxing records. And, and we need to facilitate some of this. Absolutely. What we've seen in the U.S. is that the FDA has a lot of digital health initiatives and uh, is building up a arm of their organization specific to the software and technology. If you go onto your phone and you look in your uh, store for apps, there is so much around healthcare. And yet the majority of that is informational uh, and not necessarily something that is therefore regulated because for information, it's just like any other app. But once we get and pass the point of where now we're making a diagnosis or uh, some sort of treatment like a, a digital therapeutic, then, of course, the, the threshold and whether that's a recommendation to myself as a patient or to my doctor treating me, then it becomes a lot trickier of how do we know that the data and this machine learning or AI that we're now talking about is giving me something that's based on people like me, people who are not like me, people who are equally like yeah. me. And, and so there's just so many questions about um, and challenges with how we're learning from the data that we have, because we need to understand the context of that data as well and how it's collected and for what purpose, because it, different data will make up different pieces of the puzzle. I often say that what we want is evidence-based decisions, evidence-based recommendations. And it goes to this uh, debate we see in data and analytics about data-informed or data-driven, Oh, <laughs> right? This idea that there's the combination, really, of data-driven insights and then the knowledge that people have, the people who then drive and ask the questions, which then, of course, brings up the idea also of if I, as a patient, get all of my data, who helps me to translate that? into something that is meaningful to me. Yes. So as you referred to this, it's interesting. It feels like just this week, we all either listened to the same podcast or read the same work. Um, Dr. Linda uh, Hill from Harvard Business Review talked about in her research how data-driven could be threatening for those who are experts. And she recommends we shift to this term data informed. That way you're using the data plus your expertise and it's less threatening. But either way, to take advantage of this, there has to be a culture of evidence-based decision-making. Now, I would think in healthcare, that culture, and specifically in clinical trials, that culture of evidence-based decision-making is already there. It is at the core foundation. Healthcare and the de clinical development is driven by science and data. That's how we get insights. That's how we, we, we derive information. And yet the exciting piece about this is also the evolution of that evidence, the idea of what problems are we solving, that the strategic component to thinking about the data storytelling and what that data is giving us um, and, and what doors it's unlocking for us. And the combination of that with this medicine and clinical research domain expertise is what will allow us to best serve 
patients that are the patients of today and the patients of uh, further away in the future. So data-driven is an important element of it because it also allows us, or data-informed, I think data is the core there, right? The common denominator. And it is that data that really allows us to test our assumptions, to challenge what we know and what we don't know. Because working in healthcare is a very humbling experience. There is some very complicated systems. Think about how long and and the journey of learning about Alzheimer's disease and how close we've been and how heart-wrenching it's been to watch compounds go up and and, and go through trials only to to miss um, some key results. Uh, It's just heartbreaking for the scientific community and, and for the patient community. And so, Data is definitely at the core, but if it was just data, if we could perfectly predict everything in this world, then where would our, you know, will and personal judgment and reasoning be? Yeah, it's data only tells us so much. And then there's what's not in the data where some of the human experience comes into play. You know, as you envision this better world, really an ecosystem of sharing data to deliver better patient outcomes. You also have spoken frequently about the use of design thinking in this process. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Design thinking from a data perspective is, to me is related to also an element of um, data leadership and driving towards this evidence-based uh, strategic decision-making that we are required to do. We're informed by this combination of the data and the knowledge, and that requires knowing the needs of our stakeholders, being able to empathize with those who are asking the questions so that we can really understand, for example, what job, as Clayton Christensen would say, what job they have, what jobs need to be done and what problem they're actually trying to solve. Again, it resonates with the data translator theme, the ability to be able to understand the stakeholders, then take this often varied and broad question, bring it down and define it in terms of some testable ideas around which we either have data, we need to gather data and collect certain data. And then as you sort of go through and and define that and and create some more focus and structure around it, perhaps also with um, the interplay of um, doing some collaborative brainstorming and ideation with further stakeholders, other subject matter experts, patients, right? Whatever that world might look like to then come to something that is a workable output, That allows you to then start that other process of a minimum viable product, something people can react to that you can further build on, that you can learn from and ultimately measure the impact. So that is where I really see a huge value in this design thinking approach. And as a biostatistician, this is what was so exciting about the field. This combination of the technical with the creative problem solving is just a, a perfect match. Yeah. So I think also design thinking and co-innovation go hand in hand. And you referenced going back to what is the problem you're really trying to solve? 
So if you think in the analytics space, what's been built up over many, many years is almost an order taker mindset. Document your requirements, throw it over the fence, wait a few weeks or months and see what comes back and is it useful? How do we proactively break that? So again, another really important uh, data culture shift is really necessary to evolve that. Data is no longer something that is specialized. We all are working in different systems. We have different opportunities that, uh, you know, I need to input some information into this one application, then into another. All of us are interacting with data so much more today, no matter what your job is. I've had people come to me when they learn about just how long I studied math and statistics and say, ugh, like I do, oh, I never really liked math. And yet at the same time, they're going in and they're entering information data into a system. Yeah. And so it, it's this evolution that we can all, we all have a responsibility to that, to be informed and be knowledgeable, to be knowledgeable about the start and the end of where the data goes. If I put in information to a system, that system then consumes it. Someone else then uses that. And knowing that we all have a role, I think is, is the first level of that awareness and allows us to drive towards this culture of, of being appreciative of the data and the information and seeing it all around us. Not that it's just something that's happening with us not being a part of it. And I think having that mutual and shared accountability that it is on our shoulders as responsible individuals to have a baseline understanding of that has really also inspired this data literacy movement that we've seen over the past years. Yes, I was going to ask you, this sounds like a lot like data literacy, or as as I like to call it, data fluency, where you're actually thinking data, what data can be brought to bear on this particular problem, or maybe when data doesn't pass the smell test, if data has been used to lie. So it's more than just reading data, it's actually thinking about it. So I totally agree with you on that. A good example as well to that, if you think about uh, how research is done, uh, perhaps in an academic setting, you would have some graduate students running an experiment, they're gathering data, it might be on a laptop here, another laptop there, there's a collaborative effort, you start to create a paper with your professor, the paper gets submitted, the journal says, send us your data. Now you've got to backtrack, backpedal, where's the data, what data do we need, let's put it all together, here we go, we've submitted, now we've submitted the data, phew. And in fact, the more we become a data literate culture, those students and faculty are using data all the time. They're not data illiterate, but there's still a piece of of thinking about that data as a product that seems to be missing in what I've been seeing. And there's a huge opportunity there to really be able to educate students in high school even all the way through around the fact that if you are collecting data, there are some good best practices, principles around how do we work with data? How do we ensure that data lineage such that the trust is there and that it doesn't, for example, get misused, as you were saying? Yes, absolutely. And I think high school, even earlier, middle school, what is BI in analytics, but a really fun word problem in a way. So um, teaching people then 
that age to use data and how it affects our everyday lives. Well, you actually practice this, Victoria, teaching applied analytics at Columbia University. What are the things that your students are working on and that they care about as we foster the new generation that is coming into the workforce, hopefully already having better skills than, say, 20 years ago? You know, it almost feels like the pendulum has swung in the very opposite direction of uh, from where I started off um, as a student uh, in this space. Now with this term data science, I, I love it. It's an inclusive term. At the same time, by meaning everything, it, it sometimes loses a little bit of meaning. And it is so easy these days to get some data online, download it. You've got software that you can get for free run some analyses, and come up with a conclusion. And what I really like about the program uh, at Columbia is this combination that I think is vital to the success of the rising data scientists that we see. This combination of knowing the technical analytical tools and algorithms you can use from the basic statistics all the way through more advanced machine learning topics and the again, the tech that you would need to, to do that, and balancing that with a business mindset of showing the value, understanding and getting to the problem, being able to design a well-formulated research question before you even touch the data. Because back some time ago, in order to run a specific uh, analysis or query. You had to take a card. You had a computer budget. You would take the card, right? You would you would really want to make sure you've got the right analysis. You would put it in and boom, before you know it, your computer budget is gone. You can't use the computer anymore. Nowadays, we don't have that. And yet we still need to really make sure that we're thinking clearly about the specifications, the requirements, the question we're answering, the context in which the data was collected. So this combination of knowing the domain of the area that you're working in and a baseline assumption that you have the sufficient tech and statistics background is really what I see makes these students successful in the future. So the domain and the math background um, the, some of the programming languages or, or low-code tools, the technology side. What about the communication side? The communication side, I think, comes hand-in-hand hand with the domain. You can read about a domain, but if you are not able to understand or empathize, back to the design thinking element, empathize with the uh, stakeholders that you're talking to with your boss, if you don't know the, what keeps your boss up at night and how you're contributing to solving those problems, it could be really hard to get that first promotion or even get that foot in the door in an interview. You have to know the problems a business is trying to solve and be able to also communicate and demonstrate how the analytics and the insights, right? Can't just give a spreadsheet anymore. You can't just, you know, make um, a, a slide deck that says at uh, the title table one, we're now talking about even how we talk about the data and how we present it. And there's many um, innovators that have even been on your show in the past who have really uh, helped with that. Yeah. And so this is, I think, some of the good that is coming out of this generation of workers 
But if you think about the gap and the differences in certain domains where we're still trying to bring people along to being data-driven, how do you make the case for, for lack of a better word, the laggards, the laggards? <laughs> Don't use names or functions, but how do we make the case? You know, I think it, it's the data appreciation that to me is a, a big turning point when we can show both the value, but also the horror stories. If we don't govern our data well, you know, if we misuse the data or the information, those are very motivating examples. At the end of the day, it comes down to understanding what is important to people. If for some people it's important to be able to do their core job, then relating how their core job is impacted by data, both in and out of the process, is certainly one mechanism. It's about talking to people. I'm no different than you, no different than than my my neighbor at the end of the day. And so understanding what your peers are trying to do, how they're trying to do that is part of what we need to evolve. And not everyone needs to be a data expert. That level of knowledge can actually blind some people to really be able to evolve and innovate further. So we really just need to get to a place where everyone knows what their strengths are, knows what their limitations are, and then is able to be a connector to ask the right question, to be able to say, hmm, this doesn't meet the sniff test, but maybe I get a second opinion. We do that with our own health. We should maybe do that with some of the problems we're trying to solve too. Yeah, I like that idea. You referenced the horror stories. So if you think back over your career, when has data or analytics or maybe an algorithm not worked the way it was intended, the horror story? And how did you course correct or learn from that? Let me give you an external example of that, which might be a little bit more relatable. There's been stories that we've seen in the media around facial recognition software. Yes. And the ability of facial recognition software to be able to detect uh, more light-skinned faces uh, and not be so good at matching appropriately darker skin. And so I, I think that's just such a simple example of where data and knowledge really need to come together. Another great anecdote that I've heard and that I use often um, in my talks is an example of um, two branches of um, uh, business. One, uh, so it was, it was a, a military and army, and I forget which is which. So um, if anyone knows the source of the story, I hope they can reach out to me and give me the true source. Okay. But it, it was, you know, um, the um, army had these photos of tanks. And uh, they had, you know, a, a big collection of photographs of uh, tanks in different environments, some under tree cover, some out in the open. And they uh, had asked uh, for some uh, research to be done to be able to predict if a tank was under tree cover or out in the open. They gave this uh, data to some data scientists. The data scientists did an, an algorithm and they were able to, they appropriately trained and, and tested. They, they used all of the uh, best practices that we would have. They appropriately um, did that. They then handed the results back. They said, this is a great algorithm. Please go ahead and use it. The military applied it to a new data set and they sent it back. This is crap. It doesn't work at all. And what they found was that the algorithm was able to predict a sunny and a cloudy day. And it was because the data was all from a particular source. And so this is, again, the, the 
demonstrates the importance of not just having the good technology, not just having the the great you know rigor of the statistics and data science skills, but also the mindset to think critically, to take a look at that data set first and say, hmm, what patterns do we see? And what are some of the similarities? And, and to really go above and beyond to make sure that what we're doing, especially when it has that level of, for example, predictive and, and prescriptive impact, to be able to really gut check ourselves and understand that there are some things we know and there's some things we don't know. Yeah. And that's where knowing also what was the training data set, was it only tanks on a sunny day rather than a cloudy day or open fields or what have you? Um, you mentioned the darker skin tones. Of course, I love Joy Bilamuini's work. Coded Bias is a documentary that I think every data and analytics professional, even families, it's very approachable for families. Available on Netflix, um, not sure on other platforms, but Coded Bias, a great documentary. Which then, why don't we move to the a lightning round, Victoria? So how do you stay up with everything do you read? Do you podcast? Do you, um, being in the academia as well, I suppose there's opportunities for continuous learning there, but how do you keep up? I'm a very curious person by nature, so I definitely read a lot and uh, read a lot of blurbs, uh, try to think about what I read and ask myself if it, if it makes sense and what questions it takes me down in my research for my thesis, I spent so much time. I mean, I must have read hundreds of papers because one leads you to another, to another, to another. So I often will find that, you know, I give myself an hour every day and sometimes it's really hard to break away from that. Um, and so so reading to me has been a great opportunity. Right now I'm reading a great book, uh, Navigating the Labyrinth. Okay, I haven't heard of it. Yeah. Recommended by one of my colleagues um, and really thinking about uh, the data management world and some great frameworks so that we can describe these topics in a, in a simple way and really standing on the shoulders of other giants who, who've come before us. So reading is, is a big um, inspiration for me. And then listening, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks. I'm not in the car as much as I used to be. And so I, I think now it's about, you know, taking a walk or, or listening while I'm, you know, doing some laundry on the weekends and just integrating that kind of exploration and, and, and nurturing the curiosity. Yeah. So when you're not doing biostatistics or teaching, what do you do uh, for fun? What And what's your go-to um, pump me up? Uh, so my go-to pump me up, um, I'm a huge fan of um, music. I like country music a lot, but then also uh, things um, like I don't know. I, I, there's so much great um, music that just really has a nice, good beat back, you know, to the Backstreet Boys of, uh, and of the 90s and all, all of the good stuff. Um, and even uh, the Beatles really, uh, you know, anything that has a nice beat that I can sing along to is a great um, pump me up. And, you know, when I am not doing that, I, I've got a dog, I've got my family. So we're just spending a lot of quality time uh, together and enjoying each other and really trying to learn things from from the perspective of my kids who ask a ton of questions, who don't know the concept of being wrong because they're able to ask and they learn from it and then they move on and they've learned something new and it's a new data point. And watching that evolution 
is both very humbling and also reminds me of the importance of asking questions of not being so defensive. It's good when I'm wrong. That means I learned something new. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Victoria. I always like to end with uh, one question. You know, you are so blessed or fortunate to be able to work in a purpose-driven organization. But if you think about maybe beyond the unexpected, what are you most grateful for? So much. You know, COVID has really made me so grateful for the things that I have, you know, around me for for the the health and well-being of those uh, close to me and for the lessons I've learned um, from those who are no longer here. I mentioned my grandmother as an example. I think um, many others have memories and, and lessons that they've learned from others. I have a regular gratitude practice and I regularly think about what has transpired. And, and it's very grounding to think about that. And, you know, with the technology that we have now, imagine if COVID happened 20 years ago, we would all be in such a different situation. Um, many of the things that a lot of us have relied on to be able to continue life with some sense or different sense of normalcy. Um, so at this point in time, I find myself being very grateful for that technology that has allowed us to stay connected with family, even though we actually can't see each other other than through a window and to, you know, really be able to connect with friends and stay in touch and check in on each other and be there for each other and continue to, you know, not let this period define us, but rather evolve with it. Yeah, for sure. 20 years ago or 25 years ago, we couldn't have done work from home or virtual school or Zoom. Um, trying to do this over dial-up. Or telemedicine. Yeah, or telemedicine. Yeah, another great example. So, yeah. So thank you for all those technology providers who have kept us connected and the infrastructure, the telco organizations as well. Victoria, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief and for the work you do every day. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.